So just as an introduction, over the next several weeks, we're going to have uh, a couple guests in here. Uh, this week we have uh, Richard Simmons, who you know, and uh, he will be talking, or they're all going to talk about elements of community and uh, what it looks like, what is it. Um, uh, next week we'll have Dr. Wes Hill from Trinity Seminary with us. Wes was uh, a Lenten preacher this past spring. Uh, Wes will be teaching this class and also preaching, and then... Um, the following week, we have Mark Ginolette, and then for Rally Day, I'll be back uh, back in here. So let's pray for Richard, um, and we'll, we'll get started. Let us pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your church and that you've called us together as, as a body that is dependent upon one another. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak uh, through your servant Richard this morning, that his words might be your words, and that uh, your word would not come back void, but would accomplish uh, that which for it was purposed to accomplish. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Can you everybody hear me? Uh, this is a great topic, and I think it comes at an appropriate time as uh, we're looking at the particular role of small groups in uh, in our church. And before I start, before I begin, I want to uh, share a few thoughts that I think are foundational to truly understand this issue of community. And when I start to ask you to think about <clears throat> how God designed us as human beings, remembering that we function best when we do what God designed us to do, and that we are our healthiest when we do what God designed us to do. You know, we're told in Scripture that we are designed in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. You know, unlike any other creature, we have so many of God's characteristics. You see, our lives reflect who He is and what He is like. We have so many of His features. For instance, we have a personality as God has a personality. We can think, reason, and be creative just as He thinks, reasons, and is creative. But most significantly, we are relational beings because God is relational. You know, the Scripture says we love because He first loved us. And this, to me, is why it's so important to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And you see how it makes so much sense, even though it's quite a mystery. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, you have God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. But contrast that with the Muslim religion, which is truly a monotheistic religion. One God, Allah. Which means for all eternity, this God, Allah, has been by Himself. He's been alone. And at some point, the Muslims teach that He created the world and the people in the world, and they worship Him, but have no relationship with Him. You see, relationship to Allah is not intrinsic to who He is. But on the other hand, as you look at the Holy Trinity, you have one unified will, one unified heart, but three persons. 
And these three persons have been in relationship for all of eternity. I mean, think about it. You, you often see Jesus get up early. In Mark 1.35, it says he gets up early while it was still dark to go pray. Well, who was he praying to? Who was he talking to? He was talking to the Father. Go read John 17. The high priestly prayer. Jesus calls him Father. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says, God the Holy Spirit led Jesus throughout the wilderness. So it's very important to grasp that being relational, relational is inherent to who God is. And since we're made in His image, relationships are inherent to our very being as people. I mean, think about this. Do you know what's a great indicator of this reality? If being in relationship is not inherent to our being, there would be no such thing as loneliness. Loneliness would not exist. And yet I want to tell you, loneliness plagues our land. And I'll tell you who it really plagues. Men. It's amazing how many men are so lonely because they won't let anybody into their lives. That's a whole other issue. That's a whole other issue. Arthur Donald Miller says this, The words alone, lonely, and loneliness are three of the most powerful words in the English language. Those words say that we are human. They are like the words hunger and thirst. But they are not words about the body, but the soul. He goes on to say, I think it's interesting that God designed people to need other people. Our souls need to interact with other people to be healthy. I want to read a couple of verses of Scripture that I think reveal how we need each other. You see this particularly in the Apostle Paul's life. In 2 Timothy 1.16, he praises Onesiphorus, he said, because he often would come and refresh me. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 17 and 18. He speaks of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. He says, they supplied what I desperately needed and was looking for. They have refreshed my spirit. And in that short little letter, and people pronounce this differently. Some pronounce it Philemon. I pronounce it Philemon in verse 7. Paul says, I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love. The NIV says, I've come to have much joy and encouragement in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. And clearly he's not talking about physical refreshment. He speaks of refreshing the heart, refreshing the soul. And it really strikes me that Paul, who spent a great deal of his life in prison, probably did go through periods of discouragement and loneliness. And he needed others to come along and refresh him, to encourage him, to strengthen him. You know, Proverbs addresses this issue 
In a wonderful verse, it's Proverbs eleven twenty five. It says, "A generous man will be pro- will prosper, and he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed." Do you see what's going on there? As we invest in other people, as we encourage others, as we love others, it impacts us as well. One final scripture I do want to read is Psalm one thirty three where David says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Diedrich Bonhoeffer believed that these verses in Psalm 133 is Scripture's praise of life together in community. And hopefully we all recognize the significance and the life-giving power of relationship and life in community. This is so much such a big part of the Christian life. And this is what God had in mind when He put us here. Now, before I I really kind of dive in and talk about what is community, you'll notice that I refer to C.S. Lewis several times in this presentation. And I do because he believes so strongly in community. In us being together with small groups or even in larger groups. He had incredible value. He put a a real value on friendship and relationship. Every biographer that ever has written about Lewis emphasized how profoundly his conversion to Christ altered his life, particularly his capacity to experience joy in relationships. The joy in being in a community of believers Because after he came to Christ, he found great joy in his newly established relationship with his heavenly father, but also in the new friendships he formed. In fact, he formed a a group that they met together for 19 years. They were called the Inklings. J.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and a number of other literary figures were part of this group, and they met regularly. And they became a literary discussion group. And like I said, it lasted almost 19 years. You can see how he valued community. Now, I want to read this to you because I think it's, um, it's just appropriate for this topic. And it comes from, in my mind, in my opinion, one of the best books I've ever read. It's called The Question of God by Armand Nikolai. Nikolai is today a psychiatrist that teaches at Harvard Medical School. He used to, I don't think he still teaches it. I I checked recently, I couldn't quite determine this. But he used to teach a undergraduate course at Harvard comparing the life of C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud. And he would take basically compare their different worldviews on different topics. 
And it's a fabulous book. But in it, he talks about happiness and relationship. And this, listen to what he says about Lewis. He says, nothing brought Lewis more enjoyment than sitting around a fire with a group of close friends engaged in good discussion or taking long walks with them through the English countryside. My happiest hours, Lewis wrote, are spent with three or four old friends in old clothes tramping together and putting up in small pubs or else sitting up till the small hours in someone's college rooms talking nonsense or poetry, theology, metaphysics. There's no sound I like better than laughter. In another letter to his friend Greaves, Lewis wrote, Friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me it is the chief happiness of life. If I had to give a piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. Lewis changed from a weary introvert with few close relationships to a personable extrovert with scores of close friends and colleagues. You see, C.S. Lewis got it. Friendship, fellowship, being in community. Let me ask you a question. As I, as I read that to you, I was reading those words to you about Lewis, how did it make you feel? How did it strike you? You know, there's something inside of me that says, this is the way life should be. I think Lewis valued the people in his life and was very intentional in the pursuit of quality time with others. Now, I, I do need to add this. He had an advantage over a lot of us. He, he was a bachelor most of his life. And so when you, you, you throw in marriage and raising children, that definitely creates a, a whole different dynamic. But still, I think everyone sitting here realizes just the value of these type of relationships. I think Lewis clearly recognized that the deeper and more intimate his relationships, the richer his life would be. Now, I want to talk about what Andrew asked me to come speak on, and that is, you know, what is community? What is this idea of being in community? In fact, I looked it up because I was curious. The word community is not even really used in the Bible. In the book of Job, in the New American Standard, is mentioned, but not in the context in which we're talking. But it's implied uh, throughout the Bible. For instance, we're called a body of believers. We're compared to the functioning of a human body. And I think we all realize, you know, when you think about where you live, that you live in a community. If you live in the city of Birmingham, you live in this community. Or if you live in Vestavia or Mountain Brook or Homewood or Hoover. Now those are all communities. But my thought on community really starts also here with this church. This church is a community. And what I've found, the longer you, you come and attend and participate, the more you feel like you're a you're a part of something significant. But I would also say this. I truly do think when I look at my own life, one of the most important communities is something that the Advent really promotes, and that's being in small groups with others. 
And I think that's what, I love the emphasis that's placed, and I didn't ask, Andrew, I meant to ask you before, the, before we started, was I know that um, Emily Menendez and, and Fontaine Pope facilitate a lot of that. I think that's kind of their focus. I mean, what a great thing that a church has people assigned to promote this and to help put these together. You see, by definition, a community is a unified body of individuals who are drawn together as a result of sharing common attitudes or interests or goals. And you know, as reading through this, I'm I'm very blessed. God has blessed me. I've lived here my entire life other than a year in Atlanta and then four years off in college. But I love being here because I have so many great friendships. Uh, one of my very closest friends, Billy Pritchard, we, we grew up together. We were born eight days apart. We have a 61-year-old friendship. But also, I'm in a group we, uh, with three other men. We meet about every six weeks, and just the four of us, and we meet for an hour. And then sometimes afterwards, we might go to dinner with our wives. And we, as I said, we've been meeting for 10 years because we saw a need for deeper relationships with other men. And we also needed accountability from other men because I'm convinced that living in isolation can be very dangerous. And again, I speak from a male perspective. That's what so many men do. They really, they live in isolation. One of the first things that we do when we get together, the very first thing that we do is that we ask each other, and we all have to answer in the group, since we've last met, has any of you, if any of us, watched pornography? We need to hold each other accountable because it's so easy to live in isolation and develop such destructive habits and actions. And I think every one of us would agree how meaningful this time is for all of us. It makes us realize how we need each other. There's a great verse in the book of Romans I want to read from. I think this says it best. I'm going to read it from the New American Standard, and then I'm going to look at the NIV and the Amplified because this is powerful. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. It says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body to, to, in Christ and individually members one of another. Now listen to what the NIV says in verse 5. It says, Each member belongs to all the others. And then the Amplified says, we are mutually dependent on one another. Paul is addressing believers. He's addressing the early church. And isn't it interesting that God designed us to need each other, to be mutually dependent on one another. And this is why I truly 
believe that we become dysfunctional. Then we struggle so much when we live in isolation. You know, there, there are three men that I know. I've known all of them for 45 years or more. And they're all recovering alcoholics. And every single one of them, I've talked to them about this, each one of them to a man will tell you that one of the key factors in their recovery is the encouragement they receive from being involved with AA. And the key to AA's effectiveness is clearly the power of being in community. In fact, each of these men will tell you, each one of these men will tell you that you are in major trouble as an addict if you think you can handle your addiction by yourself. Now, I want to now just maybe turn to the church and say there's truly a power of living in a community of other believers. There is. And you will struggle as a Christian if you think you can walk with God by yourself. Think about this. At a certain point in time, Jesus sent out his disciples to minister to preach. You remember how he sent them out? He sent them out in pairs. You know, you th if you think, you know, it could have been so much more effective if, and he covered so much more ground if they'd have sent them all 12 out in different directions. But he sent them out in pairs. A community of two, so to speak. Because I think there was a need, particularly going out into a hostile world, there was a need to have two of them going out together. I'm curious, have you experienced that in your life? Just having other believers as you interact with them. Maybe you study the Bible together. You pray with them. You talk with them. How does it impact you? Have you ever been in a small group? I really appreciated the, uh, the testimony today. I, I think if you're not, have never tried a small group? Right now might be a good time to start. I think they're starting to kick them off this fall. I think it has, I would just say this in my own life, it has the potential to be life-changing. I want to read to you some words from Philip Zimbardo. Philip Zimbardo is a psychologist. He teaches at Stanford, and he's a believer. And he talks about this, and you get the impression he's, he's, he's targeting men, but really it's for all of us. He says, there's nothing more detrimental to a person's life than isolation. There's no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. He believes that the, he goes on to say, the primary strategy of the evil one in the times that we are currently live in is to trivialize human existence by isolating us one from another so that we lose the power of community. And the way he does this is he creates the delusion 
that the reasons for our isolation are time pressures, work demands, and economic uncertainties. Now I work, the work that I do is with, with men. And this is what I find to be true. It is so easy to come up with reasons not to get close to any other men. Because it makes us feel safe if we, as we put up our guards and never are truly transparent with anyone else. Please hear this. And I believe this to be absolutely on target. The more alone we are in our Christian walk, the more of a loss of intimacy we will experience with God. This doesn't mean you don't need to spend time alone with the Lord. I mean, I think that is absolutely critical. But what I am saying is that the more intimate you are with other Christians, whether in fellowship or Bible study or prayer, you will find that it leads to greater intimacy with Christ. This is the biblical basis for community. This is why Christianity cannot be a privatized faith as so many people want it. Maybe you've heard that before. You know, what I believe is private to me. God had never intended that. Years ago, I, I heard a sermon, and I was, it was a recording, so I was able to come back and write it down. And in the sermon, C.S. Lewis shared of his friendship with two men. One's name was Ronald, and the other's name was Charles. And these three men were really close. They spent a great deal of time together. And then Charles died. Suddenly passed away. And Lewis figured that he would get more out of Ronald. They would now have the opportunity to really get to know him at a deeper level. Yet he says to his shock, when Charles died, instead of getting more of Ronald, he said, I got less. He said, what Lewis said he realized is that there were certain things about Ronald that only Charles could bring out. And from this, Lewis concluded, you cannot know Christ by yourself. Because to fully know Christ is to know other believers and to interact with other believers who know him intimately. And so the question is, again, what about us? What about our lives? Who are we in community with? Are you connected with any other Christians in a meaningful way? Are you in community with other believers? You know, I, I, this is not, I didn't put this in my notes, but I, I just, it's hit me this morning. Um, I came, I became a Christian as a sophomore at Sewanee, University of the South. And going into my junior year, you know, I really, I wanted to grow spiritually. But I didn't know anybody else that had that interest. And so I felt kind of alone. And during, during fraternity rush, a guy came through. He was a freshman. He was from San Antonio, Texas. 
And I could tell there's something different about this guy. And I pulled him aside at one of the, the, the rush functions, and we talked, and real quickly it became apparent. This guy, he had it together. He was a very committed believer. And so he and I and one other guy would get up and meet early on a Wednesday morning before class. I had never done anything like this. Of course, I was new in my faith. But we met that entire year. The other guy was a senior. And me, I was a junior and then this freshman. And we did this for a solid year. And I hate to think where my life might have been, where my, my, my faith, my growth, my spiritual life would have gone without those meetings on Wednesday mornings. I'm not sure I would have survived. I don't know that. But it had a huge impact on my life. So where, where are we on this spectrum? I mean, are we connected with other Christians in a meaningful way? You know, because I am convinced that our relationship with Christ and our relationship with others is truly the essence of life. But if that's true, if everything that I've said today is true, you know, we should truly do everything in our power to develop to protect and to nurture these relationships. Yet isn't it amazing that the priorities in our lives just aren't focused here? So I would kind of leave you with this thought. I truly believe God doesn't want us to live in isolation in our Christian faith and in our Christian lives. Though, as I said earlier, it may make us feel safe just to be by ourselves. But this is something that I, I feel very strongly about and I think is true. And I'll leave you with this. One day, we're going to be faced with this realization. That we have this deep yearning in our hearts. That we want to be loved not for what we've accomplished in life, but for who we really are. But for in order that to happen, it requires for us to be truly known by others. To have people who refresh us, who encourage us, who pray for us, For people who truly care for our souls. I'm going to pray and then uh, let's, and I'll, yeah, I, let, me, let me close in prayer then I'll take a couple of questions and then we'll, we'll be done. All right. Father, thank you for, uh, I thank you for this church, for this body. I thank you for what you're doing in our city. Well, we're grateful for the way you designed us as relational beings and people who are mutually dependent one to another. I pray that you would continue to draw us to yourselves, 
I pray that you would lead and guide us as, as relation to, the, to being in community, to being in a small group. I pray that you'd give us the courage maybe to step out, get out of our comfort zone, and get involved in the lives of other people, to be known by others. I pray your blessing on each person here, on each marriage here, each family. I ask your blessing upon them. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Yes, ma'am. Dave? Yes. Armand Nikolai, N-I-C-H-O-L-I. And the book is the question. Armand, A-R-M-A-N-D-E. Nikolai, and the book is The Question of God. I just bought a copy of it recently on Amazon, so I, they can be gotten pretty easily. O N I C H O L I. Yeah. Thanks, Richard. That was, yeah, a, that was a great talk. Um, Thank you. My um, understanding of where God uh, starts this conversation about communities really in the Old Testament in Genesis, right? When um, when he decides that Adam shouldn't be alone, right? And he and he and he creates Eve. And I think what's very interesting is he doesn't just create Eve out of the dust, right? He pulls Eve out of uh, Adam's rib. So there's a physical, biological connection that starts with the origin of humanity. And uh, if you look at all of us here now, you know, really from a, a genetic perspective. We are all uh, very interconnected in that same way that uh, God created us from the very beginning. Uh, Farrell, I appreciate that. In fact, that would make a great addition to this presentation. So uh, sorry I didn't have that before we started. (laughs) Okay. Richard, I'm glad you were up there and not me. I guess I should say the um, you, you mentioned C.S. Lewis and the Inklings and his time with Ron, Ronald and um, Charles. And Charles, and an observation, and I love your comment on it, is that in the culture in which we live, especially in in Birmingham, I mean, we're pretty accomplished. I mean, we a lot of folks here have done what they've set out to do, and there even in friendship seems to be a spirit of competition. Uh, but often is at the expense of the other, where these men were able to spur one another on and were certainly competitive, but as you said, they brought out the best in one another, and yet they were still able to to accomplish that which God had called them to do. And so especially with men, and I see this a lot in, in high schoolers as well, can you talk about, I mean, do you see that, this spirit of competition, not uh, something good, being effective negatively in relationships. Um, wow, I, I could I could speak for a long time on that. Uh, truly, one of the the problems men have in their relationships, as you describe, is it's almost like we are in competition with with each other. And I'm in the in the process right now of doing a study with, in all my groups on the book of Ecclesiastes, and in Ecclesiastes 4.4 4 it says that one of the problems with work 
is you're always comparing yourself with your neighbor. And there's always this comparison that comes in and, and um, it creates all kinds of issues in, in men's lives. And you know, I, I wrote the, that book, The True Measure of a Man, to really cover this very issue. And in one of the last chapters, it's, it, it, I talk about being content. You know, that's God's will for our lives. He talks about that several times in Philippians and in Timothy. And that if you are truly content, when someone else does really well, you're happy for them. You pull for them. You're excited for them. And when they go through difficult times, you weep with them. And yet, how many times have we been in a situation where we hear some, someone falls into hard times and we're happy? Not outwardly, but secretly happy. Or when someone does really well, we're jealous. We're not happy for them. And yet we tell them, well, we're, I'm so happy for you. That just shows you the problems that we do have in our relationships and how they are very, they can be, and I, I, again, I have to say, I, I speak from the perspective of working with men. Women, I, I, I say this, women are, are healthier than men. You get two women together, it's amazing how they're, they'll tell you what's going on in their lives. We're not, like, we're not that way. We like to talk about sports and football, um, about business and what's going on in the stock market. And it's, it creates real problems. I, I like to share those words from Simon and Garfunkel. I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. Somehow we, we've come to think that's what we're called to be. And if that's the way we live our lives, then we never will be in real community. And we'll never experience all the things that I talked about today, which I think are so essential if you're going to truly grow and mature as a believer. I'm not sure I answered Andrew's question, but because you, what you said is there's so many directions I could go. Um, but this issue today, I, I, nobody's ever asked me to speak on it. But it's one of the most important things, I think, in the Christian life. So um, I, I'm, gr I'm grateful that you have chosen to kind of attack that. Yeah. Richard, I think you know, it was a great talk. I think um, it's interesting that the new, a lot of the New Testament is not just being focused on communities of believers, but being in the right communities and being in healthy communities. I mean, Christ's major life ministry during his life was reforming the community he was in and calling it out. And a lot of the Paul, Pauline letters are you know, to believers in communities that are facing... Um, false teaching or other kind of struggles. Yeah, I, I would, would agree with that, and that's why um, my, my wife and I were drawn to come to Advent. Um, when we came, Paul's all was leaving, Frank was coming in, and we loved the teaching. We felt like this is a great place to raise our children, and so I, 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 would, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I, I do, uh, the, the thing that strikes me, I was reading the other day in the book of Luke, and it talked about that, that God sent John, the Baptist, to come before Jesus to pay. He says, to bring to the people a true knowledge of salvation. That struck me. Why do they need a true knowledge? You would think they, they'd lost their way. The lost sheep of Israel. They'd lost their way. So clearly to, to be in a healthy community it has to be one that is it, I think that is sound biblically 
uh, sound teaching, sound leadership. Yeah. I tell you, this is probably be the last question because I know you got a, you do need to be at eleven five, no, don't you? Oh, you don't. <laughs> All right, last question. I just wondered if you could speak to us a minute about community and exclusivity. So in times where you might feel you've got a sufficient number of friends or a number of relationships and you might have more requests from outside people wanting to get in or, you, you know, how you um, mm. manage that. Yeah. Wow. Anybody want to help me here? <laughs> well, I'm in... 10 to 16 small groups or study groups uh, a week, and there's there's more the merrier, I'd say. You, each We all come to them broken. I think that's one thing that maybe hadn't been said, that everybody in these small groups is needy, broken, uh, but there's a, a welcomeness in small groups in Christ that uh, is healing to all of us, that uh, we are accepted in these small groups and we're allowed to flourish. Um. I, I, <clears throat> yeah, I, I would say that, that you know, here you, you, you get a group of believers together, whether it's a small group, a church, whatever, but we are also to be outward focused uh, to the world that we live in and not just become kind of a holy huddle. I think that could be kind of dangerous. Um, we're called to reach out to the world, to go out into the world, to infiltrate the world, and to make a difference. So I don't know if I answered your question, but it was a, it's a hard question to answer. Thank you all very much. It's an honor to be here.